Hello, and welcome to Bibliothek der Reinigung. Before we get going with our first few sections, I'd like to go over a few things. The podcast will be hosted for now on Anchor FM. I have no misconceptions about eventually being banned from using the service, but for now, Anchor FM is our home. The podcast will serve to bring high-quality books in audio format to the listener. As an avid reader, it's long been my goal to bring Third Reich literature to a broad public. I would also like to make an appeal that when I get a new ProtonMail account set up, please email me with any questions you have, any comments, or any inquiries about donations. It's been a roller coaster few months, and if you appreciate this work, please consider donating. I will have all that information to come in future installments. So at the rate that I'm reading, it seems like two chapters are about 45 minutes or an hour. So we'll continue with chapter six and hopefully hit chapter seven in this episode. So chapter six is called Generalfeldmarschall Erwin Rommel. There exists a real danger that our friend Rommel is becoming a kind of magician or boogeyman to our troops, who are talking far too much about him. He is by no means a superman, although he is undoubtedly very energetic and able. Even if he were a superman, it would still be highly undesirable that our men should credit him with supernatural supernatural powers. I wish you to dispel by all possible means the idea that Rommel represents something more than an ordinary German general. The important thing now is to see to it that we do not always talk of Rommel when we mean the enemy in Libya. We must refer to, quote, the Germans, or, quote, the Axis powers, or, quote, the enemy, and not always keep harping on Rommel. Please ensure that this order is put into immediate effect and impress upon all commanders that, from a psychological point of view, it is a matter of the highest importance. Signed, C.J. Auchinleck, General, Commander-in-Chief, MEF. Quote, P.S. I am not jealous of Rommel. This secret order to all British corps and division commanders in Africa fell into the hands of German troops. It said more about Generalfeldmarschall Erwin Rommel, commander of the German Africa Corps, and later commander of an army and an army group than the highest decoration could ever have done. What laid behind this order were great respect for Rommel and fear of his popularity, which he enjoyed among friend and foe. Rommel, the name frightened elite British divisions and caused their commanders to become nervous. We will fight our way through, was Rommel's solution, and this was a familiar quotation wherever the general appeared. He was a genuine phenomenon among the soldiers of both warring parties, the Anglo-Americans and the Germans. The British called him the Desert Fox. Germany's allies referred to him as the Lion of Africa. To his own soldiers, he was simply Rommel. Historians and military researchers are more factual and cooler in their assessment. They characterize Rommel as the outstanding desert specialist. His bold operations in Cyrenacea, the impetuous drive to El Alamein, the daring plan to take Cairo and Alexandria and advance to the Caucasus, in order to attack the Soviets in the rear, have long since become part of military history. Rommel, who was sometimes characterized as a visionary, was in reality a sober calculator on the battlefield. He was a unit leader in the modern style and broke with tradition if it led to success. He thought and led in a revolutionary manner, and his bold plans were realized in large-scale and successful operations. He was one of the tra- it was one of the tragic chapters of the last war that Rommel's plans often floundered on the pig-headedness of the Italian command on failures of senior Italian officers, and on the material superiority of the Allies. Moreover, those in the Fuhrer headquarters and in Rome took the setbacks in Africa all too lightly and placated themselves with the phrase, Rommel will take care of it. 
Rommel's true stature was recognized by his British opponents Montgomery, Auchinleck, and Wavell. A picture of Rommel hung in Montgomery's caravan. Although the English feared him, the officers of the British army finally became convinced that Rommel was, the, was only human after all. The British high command knew of the supply bottleneck on the German side. Even the most skilled desert warrior must someday fall victim to the enemy's superiority in men and material. But they wanted to achieve their objective sooner than that and tried to eliminate the German Feldmarschall. A commando group led by Captain Sterling was sent against the headquarters of the Africa Corps in Beta Latoria, where was sought Rommel was located during the night of November 17, 18, in 1941. The British broke into the house, but Rommel was not there. The field marshal had given up these quarters and handed them over to the staff of the quartermaster. At the moment of the attack, Rommel was in Rome. Had Rommel not changed headquarters, who can say what his fate may have been? Erwin Rommel was born in Heidenheim in Württemberg on November 15, 1891. The son of a professor, he joined the 124th Infantry Regiment, 6th Württemberg in Weingarten as an officer cadet. In 1912, he was commissioned as a lieutenant. He took part in World War I with his original unit until in the autumn of 1915 he was transferred to a newly formed Württemberg Mountain Infantry Battalion. On, on October 25, 1917, the young company commander was awarded the Pour de Merite after taking the 1,643-meter-high Monte Matajur in a daring raid and subsequently distinguishing himself in the fighting near Longaron in the 12th Battle of Isonzo. A year later, he was promoted to the rank of Hauptmann. After the war, Rommel remained in Germany's 100,000-man army, first as a company commander, then as an infantry instructor at the military school in Dresden. In the autumn of 1933, he was made the commander of a mountain infantry battalion in Goslar. Soon afterward, he was assigned to the officer school in Potsdam as a course director and then armed forces high command liaison officer on the staff of the Reich Youth Command. Finally, he was made commander of the Wiener Neustadt Military Academy. In 1938, Hitler named him commander of Führer headquarters. At the same time, he assumed command of the Führer escort battalion, with which he took part in the march into Austria and Poland. By now, Rommel was fascinated by Hitler, even enthusiastic. On September 9, 1939, after a visit to Danzig, he wrote of Hitler in his diary, He is extraordinarily friendly to me. On October 2nd, he related to Hitler after a visit with Oberst Schmundt in Warsaw, the population breathed a sigh of relief when the Germans came and saved them. Hitler saw in Rommel an officer capable of inspiring his troops and one who possessed a high level of leadership qualities. Prior to the beginning of the French campaign, he therefore gave him command of the 7th Panzer Division, a choice which was to prove a wise one and one of which Hitler spoke years later. He saw himself as the discoverer of the future field marshal. Leading this division in 1940, Rommel stormed across the Meuse, broke through the Maginot Line and advanced into the La Bessée Canal, where he was promoted to General Lieutenant and awarded the Knight's Cross on May 26th. Without stopping, he attacked Lille, turned, and crossed the Somme in order to crack the Wagen Line. It was typical of Rommel that he, already, he was already leading his troops from the front, driving into cities immediately behind the advance patrols, capturing bridges and taking prisoners. Frequent changes of objective, lightning-quick advances with hastily assembled battle groups, encirclements and sudden appearances in the enemy's rear led his opponents to dub the panzer unit the Ghost Division. Rommel always turned up where he was least expected, spreading fear and confusion. The end soon followed, said a French general. The tactics and dash of the division commander caught the attention of General Oberst Guderian. 
inspector of mobile forces, and the initiator of a modern tank warfare. He characterized Rommel as the prototype of the modern unit leader. At the beginning of 1941, the Italian army ran into difficulty against the British army in Libya. Mussolini asked Hitler for help. On February 3rd, the latter tasked General Lu the General Lieutenant Rommel with the formation of the Africa Corps, for he was of the opinion that only a tough man could handle this mission. I consider Rommel an extremely tough commander, Hitler told his chief, Adjutant Oberschmund. Four days later, Hitler personally briefed the newly appointed Commander-in-Chief, commander Africa, and sent him to the new theater with Oberschmund. On February 9th, Hitler received Mussolini's approval of the naming of Rommel, and three days later, the first troops of the 5th Light Division disembarked in Tripoli. Following a 26-hour force march, they reached the front near Il Agalia and the British forces under General Wavell. This feat was hailed enthusiastically by Hitler and Mussolini. On March 20th, Rommel reported to Hitler in Fuhrer headquarters. Hitler used the occasion to present Rommel with the Knight's Cross with oak leaves for the accomplishments of the 7th Panzer Division in France. Back in Africa, Rommel launched an offensive against the surprised British, contrary to the wishes of the OKH and without informing the Italian commander-in-chief, General Garibaldi. The German Africa Corps overran Marcel Brega, took Agio Labia, and secured important sources of fresh water. Micheli fell, followed by Solom. Rommel's troops reached the Egyptian border before a lack of supplies forced them to halt. There was jubilation in Germany. In a few months, Rommel had become Germany's most popular personality. His name became synonymous with bravery, daring, ability as a field commander, cunning, and invincibility. The German public never learned that the German and Italian forces had a daily requirement of 5,000 tons of food and materiel and that this norm was never achieved. In most cases, this was the fault of Italian command centers, which betrayed the exact sailing times of the supply ships to the British. This soon became known to the commander-in-chief of the Africa Corps, Erwin Rommel. Rommel received a surprise in his very first meeting with senior Italian officers. The carelessness with which they assessed the situation and their lack of regard for their troops caused him to become skeptical. When the poorly led Italian soldiers became a burden on the German Corps, Rommel came to despise his cowardly allies. He made no secret of his feelings. Encouraged to cooperate with the Italian headquarters, the Commando Supremo, the result was conflict. Rommel had no intention of subordinating himself to the Italians, and he drew his conclusions after his first discussions with Marshals Cavallo and Bastico. The German soldiers are led by me. See to it that your soldiers don't always run away and thus create situations which might become serious, he said to the Italians. Furious, they promptly complained to Mussolini about Rommel's behavior. Hitler let Rommel know that he should be more gentle in dealing with their sensitive allies. He approved of all the corps' chiefs' operations, but he, Hitler, also had to consider Mussolini's feelings. However, the vigorous panzer commander did not concern himself with political considerations. He had other worries, and the longer he was in Africa, the more he learned to despise the Italians. Feldmarschall Kesselring even maintained that Rommel hated the Italians because they were poor soldiers and their officer corps was totally corrupt. One thing was certain. Rommel, who had fought against the Italians in the First World War, spoke his mind loudly. Better no allies at all than these. We will live to see them change sides. Rommel was about to be proved right. On November 19, 1941, the British attacked with strong armored forces and 100,000 men and overran the Italian positions. The weak German forces were also involved in heavy defensive fighting, but Rommel, but Rommel had recognized what was important in this theater of war. He shortened his supply lines, moved in reinforcements, and bluffed the enemy. Mock tanks mounted on Volkswagens drove in circles. 
The resulting dust clouds were intended to simulate the approach of a large armored force. The British promptly fell for the ruse and broke off the attack. On January 20, 1942, Rommel received the oak leaves with swords. Two days later, without seeking the approval of the Commando Supremo, he attacked the British again and drove them out of Cyrenaica. Rommel's name will always be associated with the city and fortress of Tobruk. In a daring advance, he cut off the British garrison from its army. The main body of his corps drove east, and it wasn't until June 19, 1942, when the enemy had been sufficiently weakened to prevent them from leaving the surrounded city, that he turned with part of his forces to attack Tobruk. On June 22, 1942, 33,000 British troops, including five generals, began the march into captivity. Rommel was promoted to the rank of General Feld Marshal. He wrote to his wife, I would rather have a fresh division than the field marshal's baton. Near Bir el Gobi, Rommel showed himself to be a strategist in the grand style. He joined battle against a numerically far superior force and, employing the element of surprise and disregarding threats to his flanks, drove into the enemy's assembly areas. Rommel led the attack at the head of the 21st Panzer Division and directed the operation against the Halfaya Pass. That night, as he weaved between British tank and vehicle columns, he came close to being captured. Luckily, he had a memo, a British command vehicle which had previously belonged to General Lovell. This deception saved him from being taken prisoner. His daring attacks and breakthroughs repeatedly created the impression among the enemy that Rommel possessed far stronger forces than he actually had. The German commander knew that in the desert only a quick decision, courage, and surprise attack could lead to success. Often he found himself in close proximity to British troops and guns. Once he was forced to land his Fieseler Storch. When he approached the crew of the anti-aircraft gun, he realized only at the last second that they were Tommies. Luckily, a German Volkswagen appeared and snatched the field marshal and his party out from under the noses of the enemy. During one of his vigorous attacks, he was cut off from the command vehicle. Rommel recognized the danger and disappeared into a New Zealand Army hospital, which fortunately was located nearby. The hospital guards and the wounded were more than a little surprised to see the German field marshal, the famous Rommel, appear in their midst. He was led through the hospital tents by the doctor in charge. Rommel promised the New Zealanders good treatment as German prisoners and then disappeared the way he had come. On June 1942, there existed a good chance of ending the African campaign quickly and victoriously. But whoever wished to triumph in the desert first had to take possession of the island of Malta. Ceaseless air attacks against the British base had been unable to convince the garrison to surrender. An operation to capture Malta was conceived. Fuhrer headquarters dubbed it Hercules. The operation's leading proponents were Mussolini and Kesselring. The, the Duce implored Rommel to occupy fixed positions and wait until Operation Hercules began. It would, then it would be only a matter of days at most weeks. But Rommel had no intention of waiting. The British, shocked by the loss of Tobruk, were showing signs of weakness and resignation. Rommel wanted to exploit this opportunity to smash the fleeing 8th Army following the maxim which states that once the enemy starts running, he should not be allowed to stop. On June 23rd, the Africa Corps, which by now had been enlarged to a panzer army, drove across the Egyptian frontier into the country. Rommel wanted to be in Cairo in a week. He encircled four British divisions in Marsa Matra. The British fleet evacuated Alexandria. Everywhere, the British, Australians, and New Zealanders were on the run. Victory was in Rommel's victory was within Rommel's grasp. However, Field Marshal Kesselring and the Commando Supremo were disappointed that Rommel had ignored them and launched his offensive. Rommel's success was trumpeted in Germany by Minister Goebbels' entire propaganda apparatus. 
Rommel on the advance. Rommel chases the British. Rommel soon in Cairo. England driven out of Africa. The headlines, the headlines could not, however, gloss over what was obvious in the German strategy and what had moved Kesselbrink to warn against the attack. Rommel's desert supply lines were becoming ever longer, and he had only 70 tanks and a worn-out, tired army. The Africa Corps lacked fuel, food, munitions, and vehicles. But Rommel did not stop. He risked everything and walked into a trap. The new commander of the British 8th Army, General Montgomery, had laid down a blocking line in the desert narrows of El Alamein. Rommel got that far and no further. All the effort expended in further attacks on the British positions failed in the face of the superiority of the enemy's air force, which scarcely allowed Rommel's troops to move. On October 1st, while in Germany on sick leave, Rommel briefed and attended Hitler on the situation. Excuse me, on the situation in Africa. The bogging down of his offensive before Elamine, he blamed on the difficult supply situation, the Allied superiority in the air, and the cowardice of the Italians. Hitler promised tanks, fuel, and fresh troops. Once again, Rommel was swayed by Hitler's optimism and left convinced that the Fuhrer would provide him with the necessary support. On October 23, 1942, just before midnight, Montgomery's 8th Army launched an attack with 150,000 men, taking the Germans completely by surprise. More than 1,000 tanks overran the Italians who surrendered in the tens of thousands. The German positions, too, began to give way. The full weight of the British attack, which was supported by about 1,000 aircraft, struck an army which had not yet recovered from the strains of previous battles, and which was awaiting fresh forces and supplies. Rommel immediately hurried back to Africa. What he found there depressed him. The Italian units were in full disintegration. His own army was without tank. It supplies at the bottom of the sea. But the German soldiers continued to hold before El Alamein. The extensive German minefields inflicted heavy losses on the British troops. Montgomery gave the defenders no rest, however. He broke off the offensive, regrouped, and strengthened his artillery forces. Then on November 2nd, he resumed the offensive with an artillery barrage greater than any seen before in Africa. The focal point, the German minefields. The artillery fired without pause. Hundreds of aircraft attacked ceaselessly. When the necessary breaches had been smashed in the minefields, the tanks attacked. With them came the infantry. For the first time, it seemed as if luck was about to abandon Rommel. He could not stop the enemy with an exhausted army and what remained of the Italians. Rommel saw through Montgomery's plan. He intended to catch the German army with a wide-ranging envelopment, then encircle and destroy it. Rommel telegraphed Hitler, quote, After ten days of the most difficult fighting against far superior British forces on land and in the air, the strength of the army is exhausted in spite of today's defensive success. The army is therefore not in a position to prevent the breakthrough attempt by strong enemy armored units expected tonight or tomorrow. Due to a shortage of vehicles, an orderly withdrawal of the six Italian and two German motorized division, divisions and brigades is not possible. A large proportion of these units will probably fall into the hands of the fully motorized enemy. But the motorized troops, too, are so closely entangled in the battle that only a part of them will be able to disengage from the enemy. The remaining supplies of ammunition are in the area of the front, while no, no, while no noteworthy amount is available in the rear area. The limited stocks of fuel are insufficient for a withdrawal over a long distance. The army will certainly be attacked by the British Air Force day and night on the one road available to it. In this situation, we must reckon on the gradual destruction of the army in spite of the heroic resistance and exemplary spirit of the troops. Rommel's words were a crushing blow to Hitler. The victorious Rommel, the heroic African army, were both facing destruction. Only recently the papers had, celebra had celebrated Rommel's success and propaganda minister Goebbels had ridiculed the British, 
predicting their total defeat. Now Rommel was almost finished. The Italian commando Supremo urged the Feld Marshal to persevere, to die on his feet as it were. There were already signs of extensive double-dealing by Germany's allies. Germany's African army was to be destroyed, thereby making things easy for the allies. Then the Italian forces anticipated giving up. Disappointed in Rommel, whom he intended to name commander-in-chief of the African army after Huber, whom he had originally chosen for the post, was killed in an accident, during the night Hitler sent him a telegram ordering him to hold on. Quote, Together with me, the German people are following the heroic defensive battle in Egypt, trusting faithfully in your leadership personality and in the bravery of the German-Italian troops under your command. In the situation in which you find yourself, there can be no other thoughts but to persevere, not retreat a single step, and throw every weapon and every fighter who can be released into the battle. In spite of his superiority, the enemy will also be at the end of his strength. It would not be the first time in history that the stronger will triumph over the stronger battalions of the enemy. You can choose no other path for your troops but that which leads to victory or to death. Adolf Hitler. On November 3rd, the African army had 24 tanks left. Half its personnel and artillery had been lost. The front had been shattered, and a halt would only mean the encirclement of what was left of the army. Finally, responding to a telegram from Rommel, Hitler gave his authorization for a retreat. On November 28th, unannounced and without consulting the Italian Commando Supremo, Rommel flew to the Fuhrer headquarters. Hitler received him immediately, but was very surprised to see the Feld Marshal in the Wolfschanze and not with his troops. Rommel made it clear to Hitler that the visit was of the utmost importance because he wanted to tell the Fuhrer the plain truth. When Rommel then informed him that Africa would have to be abandoned in shorter order unless there was a decisive reversal of fortunes, Hitler forbade him to go on. Rommel refused to relent. He went on to describe the bitter struggle of the German soldiers, the terrible hardships they endured, and the totally inadequate supplies they received. But Hitler wanted to hear nothing more of this. He even accused the Africa Corps of cowardice. That was too much. When Rommel protested passionately against this accusation, Hitler relented and instructed Rommel to fly to Rome with Goering, and from there undertake to supply the troops in Africa with the necessary goods. But once again, Rommel was disappointed. He was disheartened to learn that the Italians had no will to continue the war, and that the Allies were preparing a major offensive in the rear of the German forces. Following his return to Africa, an agent informed him that the Grand Mufti of Jerusalem had offered to mobilize all Muslims in North Africa against the Anglo-Americans and to wage a guerrilla war against them. In return, he wanted assurances from Hitler and Mussolini that North Africa would be decolonized after the war. This offer was a factor in Rommel's strategy, but Hitler turned down the offer abruptly out of respect for Mussolini and Italy's colonial ambitions. Whereas only a few weeks earlier Rommel had been a great hero in Hitler's eyes, he was now often heard to speak disparagingly of him. Hitler still thought of Rommel as a brave, skilled, and clever leader, but within limits. He was certainly no stayer. That was Model and Schoenau. The sympathy which Hitler had shown his Feldmarschall had sunk to, to the zero point, and nevertheless he did not want to and could not get rid of him. Rommel's standing with the German people was too great. Propaganda had ele elevated him to too high a stature and had made him an invulnerable Siegfried. Hitler wouldn't have dared to let the Feldmarschall fall. On March 4, 1943, Rommel was ordered to the Fuhrer headquarters. The Feldmarschall reported on the situation and implored Hitler to shorten the front. But Hitler rejected the notion and ordered Rommel to attack Montgomery's 8th Army on March 6th. The German troops met an enemy who had been well informed about their attack plans. After suffering heavy losses, the Africa Corps was forced to withdraw toward the Marith position. 
The same day, Hitler summoned his former favorite from Africa, received him, sent him on sick leave, and on March 11th awarded him the diamonds. The German public was not allowed to learn that Rommel was no longer in command in Africa. The awarding of the diamonds was also kept secret. Not until May 9th, when Hitler had no one else to turn to for advice on how to stop the Allied invasion of Italy, did he summon Rommel. He intended to give him command of the Italian front. On May 12th, he had every radio station announce that Rommel had received the diamonds in March. On that same May 12th, the last message from the Africa Corps was received in Fuhrer headquarters. Ammunition expended, weapons and equipment destroyed. As per orders, the DAK has fought until it is able to fight no more. An army of 120,000 men became prisoners of war. Although General Oberst Jodl had suggested finally giving overall command in Italy to Rommel, Hitler hesitated once again out of regard for Mussolini, whose generals rejected the German field marshal. Hitler thought he had reached a Solomon-like decision when he formed two army groups. Army Group B, under Rommel, with its headquarters in Saloniki, and responsibility for Crete, Greece, and the Aegean, and Army Group E, under General Oberst Lohr, with its headquarters in Belgrade and responsibilities for the Balkans. This return to active service, even if he hadn't been given overall command in Italy, restored Rommel's optimism. He was often invited to eat with Hitler, took part in situation briefings, and once again found himself becoming fascinated with the Fuhrer. Rommel wrote, What strength emanates from him with what faith and confidence do his people cling to him? Meanwhile, Hitler had convinced himself that Feldmarschall Kesselring, who enjoyed Mussolini's trust, should be given overall command in Italy. Rommel, on the other hand, was placed in charge of the Atlantic Wall. Once again, the name Rommel appeared in the headlines. The opinion of the unified German press was that if the field marshal had assumed responsibility for Germany's western bulwark, then nothing could go wrong. So Rommel awaited the invasion of full of optimism. Oh, again. So Rommel awaited the invasion full of optimism. When the Allies landed on June 6th, Rommel, commander-in-chief of the Normandy Front and of Army Group B, was in Germany. The commander of the 7th Army, Dolman, was taking part in a map exercise in Reims when the commander of the 1st SS Panzer Corps, Sepp Dietrich, was in Brussels. Rommel was unable to prevent the collapse. He saw the end coming. Hitler meddled in the affairs of the commander-in-chief of the Western Front. Feldmarschall von Rundstedt, and Rommel defended themselves and asked Hitler to come to the front to see the situation for himself. Hitler didn't come until much later on June 17th and refused to allow Rundstedt or Rommel influence in position. Finally, he criticized the German generalship and expressed doubts as to the steadfastness of the troops. Rommel protested and proposed pulling the troops back beyond the Orne and, conclude, and concluding a ceasefire. Hitler snapped back, You worry about the invasion front and not about the outcome of the war. After this conversation, the band that bound Rommel to Hitler was severed. Von Rundstedt was relieved, and Feldmarschall von Kluge was placed, was placed in overall command. Rommel saw the senselessness of the war and urged von Kluge to do, to do all that he could to save the lives of the German soldiers. Von Kluge rejected Rommel's request. We will fight to the last round. But Rommel did not give up. He asked the field marshal to go to the front and see things for himself. Von Kluge went to the front, examined the situation, and came back depressed. He apologized to Rommel. Rommel now sought further allies in order to make clear to Hitler that the fight against the Allies in the West was a crime against the German people. He made contact with the commander of the 1st SS Panzer Corps, later commander-in-chief, 5th SS Panzer Army, Sepp Dietrich. The two men knew and respected one another. Dietrich shared Rommel's opinion, having drawn similar conclusions of his own. 
Together, they tried to get General Field Marshal von Kluge, the commander-in-chief, west on their side. They met like conspirators, but von Kluge hesitated, unwilling to commit a breach of faith, and said, Gentlemen, I realize that things do not look good, but I cannot break my oath. Rommel and Dietrich admitted that they were faced with a similar situation, but declared that as unit leaders they must place the responsibility to their men above all else. The von Kluge replied, The Fuhrer will have you shot. Rommel and Dietrich didn't give up hope of winning over von Kluge. In the meantime, the commander of the 2nd SS Panzer Corps, Obergruppenführer Wilhelm Bittrich, wearer of the oak leaves with swords, had declared themselves ready to join Rommel. Rommel explained to von Kluge that all, that all that was required was a letter or a conversation with Hitler, nothing else. If three popular and well-respected generals approached Hitler with their concerns, he would have no option but to act as they suggested. After an hour, von Kluge promised to think everything over once again and inform the others of his decision. Finally, on July 13th, von Kluge gave Field Marshal Rommel permission to draft a memo to Hitler. With von Kluge's approval, he described the situation on the Western Front, stressing the bravery of the troops and the material superiority of the Allies, and ended with, quote, I must ask you to immediately draw the conclusions from this situation. I feel it is my duty as Commander-in-Chief of the Army Group to state this clearly. Rommel's objective was, and he once again reassured himself of Zepp Dietrich's loyalty, to conclude a ceasefire in the West. But the cup had to be emptied to the bitter dregs. July 17th was the fateful day on the Western Front. Rommel visited the command post and spoke with Zepp Dietrich by telephone. The two were united in their decision. While driving between Liverow and Vimoutiers, Rommel's car was attacked by enemy fighter bombers. The vehicle skidded, Rommel fell out, and lay on the road with serious head injuries. He barely escaped death. The doctors diagnosed a multiple skull fracture. Rommel was no longer able to lead. He gave up command of the army group. The dream of a ceasefire had died. The field marshal's condition was grave, and he was moved, he was moved to Ulm Hospital. On July 20th, Graf Stauffenberg's bomb exploded in Wolfschanze, Fuhrer headquarters. However, Hitler escaped with minor injuries. The revolt, which began in Paris, also failed quickly. The resistance movement collapsed. General von Stolpenagel, one of the co-conspirators, shot himself in the head, but his aim was poor. Blinded, he was taken to the hospital. Feldmarschall von Kluge suffered the consequences in his own way. He drove to the battlefields of Verdun, where he had fought as a young officer in the First World War, and poisoned himself. In his delirium... General von Stolpnagel several times spoke the name Rommel. Once he said, Rommel is our last hope. The two Gestapo men who watched him day and night noted every word spoken by the delirious general. Himmler, who was shocked when he learned that Rommel, the folk hero, might also be one of the conspirators. He knew Hitler's state of mind after the coup. And now Rommel. This would be a hard blow for Hitler. Rommel was there too, he said casually to Hitler. What? He snapped at the Reichsführer SS. What are you saying? Himmler hesitated a moment and reconsidered. If the report was inaccurate, if it was all a fantasy from the brain of General Stolpnagel, if Rommel had nothing to do with the affair, he calculated the consequences he might have to face. But then he drew himself up and said, Several times, von Stolpnagel has mentioned the name Rommel in connection with your betrayal, mein Fuhrer. Rommel recovered from his serious injuries at his house in Herlingen. In September, he received a visit from his former chief of staff and friend, General Speidel. Rommel asked him to drive to Fuhrer headquarters and speak with General Oberst Kuderian, the newly appointed chief of staff. He was to tell him that he must conclude a ceasefire in the West, even if Hitler was against it. 
Rommel was against killing Hitler in order to try him later. But Hitler reacted more quickly. He ordered an immediate investigation into the, quote, Rommel case. When he believed he had found evidence of cooperation between Rommel and the conspirators, he called together the Wehrmacht Court of Honor, a so-called honor court to which only generals belonged. The chair was held by Feldmarshal von Rundstedt. What had happened? The imprisoned Oberstleutnant Dr. Cesar von Hofecker, co-conspirator, in intimate and cousin of Graf Stauffenberg, signed a confession before he was executed, stating that Feldmarshal Rommel had been involved in the conspiracy against Hitler. Rommel had, p had promised the most important member of the resistance movement, the former chief mayor of Leipzig, Dr. Gürtler, that he would take part and would accept the office of Reich president if, he were, if it were offered to him. This piece of evidence was Rommel's death sentence. It will never be known what might have led von Hofecker, who had already been sentenced to implicate the field marshal. Rommel was requested to travel to the Fuhrer headquarters on October 7th. The field marshal remarked that he would probably not return alive. He therefore declined, referring to his poor health, and stayed at home. Eight days later, on October 14th at 12 noon, Generals Bergdorf, successor to Chief at, at Jutten and head of the Army Personnel Office, General Schmundt, who had been killed during the coup attempt, and Meisel, as well as Major Ehrensperger and SS driver Doza, arrived in Herlingen. Present were Frau Rommel, son Manfred, who as a flak auxiliary had just gone on leave, and Hauptmann Adlinger, Rommel's friend and adjutant. Generals Bergdorf and Meisel asked to speak with Rommel. In the office, they informed him that the honor court had just charged the field marshal from the Wehrmacht and that the Fuhrer was going to bring him before his people's court on charges of conspiracy and treason. The generals went on to say that because of his record, he was, he was being given an opportunity to avoid the consequences by committing suicide. They had brought poison with them, and after his death, his family would be cared for. First, Meisel left the room, then Bergdorf. Rommel spoke to his wife. I'll be dead in 15 minutes, he whispered. He revealed what the generals had told him. The poison will take effect in three seconds. The field marshal said goodbye to his wife, his son, and his friend Aldinger. Then he got into the car. Somewhere on the country road it stopped. The others got out and left Rommel alone. Three seconds later he was dead. Rommel was given a state funeral. The, pe the people were not to know what really had happened. Almost no one suspected when Hitler sent the widow a telegram with the text, I express my deepest sympathy over the death of your husband. The name of the field marshal will be associated with the heroism of the Africa Corps for all time, Adolf Hitler. The funeral service in Ulm City Hall was a farce. Rommel's widow and son remained silent, condemned to silence, as Field Marshal von Rundstedt delivered the eulogy, the same Field Marshal von Rundstedt who had presided over the honor court, which had expelled Rommel from the Wehrmacht. Next up, we have Chapter 7, Kapitän zur See, Wolfgang Luth. U-181 slid smoothly through the water. It was finally back in Bordeaux Harbor. The crew had been as 
assembled on the quarter deck in their light tropical uniforms. Before them stood their commander, a little pale but smiling, as the boat docked and the flotilla commander came on board. A band played as the German war flag was run up the mast. Then the ship's commander made his report. U-181, back from its second sortie in the South African and Indian Ocean area of operations, 103,712 tons sunk. The flotilla commander nodded to the brave men and congratulated the ship's commander on the diamonds, which had been awarded to him on August 11, 1943. The commander of the U-181 was Corvettenkapitän Wolfgang Luth, 30 years of age. In the period from September 1942 to October 1943, he sortied twice with U-181, logging a total of 333 days at sea. One of these was the second longest sortie of the Second World War, lasting 205 days. First sortie from September 12, 1942 to January 18, 1943. 58,381 tons of shipping sunk. Second sortie from March 23, 1943 to October 14, 1943. 103,712 tons of shipping sunk. Loose totals were 17 operations lasting 609 days at sea. U-9, U-138, U-43, U-181, sunk 43 ships totaling 215, 147 tons, and one submarine. The Wehrmachtai Command mistakenly reported 264,567 tons of shipping sunk. The submarine had plowed through the mountainous waves of the Earth's oceans for more than six and a half months. Thousands of miles from base, totally on their own, the men of the U-181 had sailed the endless vastness of the seas. The ordeal was visible in their faces. Often they had been forced to remain underwater for days, only surfacing for a few hours each night. But with temperatures of 55 degrees Celsius, the nights were stifling. The air was heavy as lead, and the breathing became an ordeal. Now they stood on the deck, the men of the U-818, U-181, and celebrated the beginning of their well-earned and much-longed for leave. Their commander was proud of them, for he knew that their success had been possible only because they held together for better or for worse. They had been together for 205 days, and yet it seemed to the men as if it had only been yesterday. Silently, the slender shadow pulled away from the pier. The night was dark, the only light, a few twinkling stars in the heavens. Submarine U-181 was beginning a lengthy combat sortie. There was no marching music, no handshakes, no waving, no tossing of flowers. U-181 stole noiselessly out to sea. It was March 23, 1943. In command of the vessel was Wolfgang Luth. He stood on the bridge and gazed back at the berth where the submarine had been only minutes ago. Now there was only a dark gaping hole. Several weeks earlier, he received orders to sail to the coast of Africa and the Indian Ocean. Luth knew that it would be more difficult this time, for the Allies had learned from the losses inflicted upon them by the German submarines. Luth also knew that he would not be alone this time. Several boats, some commanded by officers of rank and name, had volunteered for the operation against the enemy's shipping. Nevertheless, in the vastness of the sea, a submarine was like a needle in the haystack. Preparations were made with care. Ship and crew had to be in order. The condition of the machinery and health of the crew were checked closely. Luth was a submarine commander possessed with a great experience and personal bravery. It was said of him that he had no nerves and that he understood how to command man like scarcely anyone else. On November 17, 1942, he had received the oak leaves for his most recent operation off Africa. This U-boat commander knew what awaited him and his men. Iron discipline was a prerequisite for the success of such an operation. Comradeship and a feeling of belonging were the invisible band which had often made the seemingly impossible possible. And because Luth knew this, he made the necessary provisions. 
He had the submarine loaded not just with torpedoes and food, but with a generous supply of records, magazines, and books as well. Luth wanted to give the men something to do in their off hours besides doze. Nothing is more detrimental to fighting morale than for the crew not to know what they should do with their free time. The captain and one of his officers worked out a recreation program, scat and chess tournaments, singing contests, and plays. Luth. Gentlemen, on this sortie we'll probably see nothing but water for weeks. Water and not another ship. The officers looked at one another suggestively. And to which lo lovely corner of this world are you taking us? They asked. Luth smiled. He didn't know that himself. All he knew was that they were to sortie into the Indian Ocean. When U-181 cast off on March 23, 1943, Luth was, was at the top of the list of Germany's active submarine commanders. Only one, the unsurpassed Otto Kretschmer, had sunk more ships. However, Kretschmer's submarine had been sunk on March 17, 1941, and since then, Kretschmer was in a POW, British, BO, British POW camp. The sortie began well. U-181 had orders to attack a convoy which had been reported west of the Bay of Biscay. Luth lost the convoy, but soon afterwards sunk the 5,983-ton Empire Wimble. It was followed exactly one month later by the 5,232-ton Tenhau. The cruise became a tiresome pursuit of lone ships and old tubs. Nothing was more dangerous to crew morale than a boring mission without attacks and success. Luth was aware of this. <clears throat> he scanned the sea for streamers, but rarely found them. Now and then a few small old ships appeared on which on which, under normal circumstances, Luth wouldn't have wasted a torpedo. But here in the Indian Ocean, he had to take whatever was offered him. The crew's feeling of sailing in a successful submarine was reinforced, especially after Wolfgang Luth was awarded the Oakleys on April 15, 1943. <clears throat> the search patterns and lying in wait for fat ships cost fuel. Luth received information that the German tanker Charlotte Schliemann was waiting near the island of Moritus. The milk cow supplied German U-boats operating in the Indian Ocean with fuel, munitions, and food. On June 21, 1943, Luth rendezvoused with the submarines U-177, U-178, U-196, U-197, and U-198. The meeting with his fellow captains Hartmann, Gizet, Kentrat, Bartels, and Dom took place on the Charlotte Schliemann. The captains exchanged experiences. A common puzzle was the cause of the numerous failures of torpedoes to function. The first to leave the tanker was U-181. Luth had received orders from the BDU, the commander of the submarines, to operate near the island of Mauritius. American and British control of the seas was becoming more noticeable, not just on the water, but in the air as well. German submarines were no longer safe in the vast oceans, for the Allies had formed so-called killer groups, specialized anti-submarine units using camouflage ships. The true nature of these vessels did not become apparent until they had located the German submarine on radar if the U-boat was surfaced, or sonar if the U-boat was submerged. The occasions when loose submarine was forced underwater by destroyers and aircraft became more frequent. The ship's crew had to endure hours of depth charge attacks. Often they were very lucky, as in the case when the commander of an American submarine trap, which had located U-181, called off the attack in the belief that he had sunk the U-boat. Finally, after hours of waiting, with the crew clenching potassium, potassium tablets between their teeth to save air, and at the end of their strength, Luth gave the command to surface. They had escaped once again. Iron discipline was necessary to endure life aboard a submarine in such climactic conditions, but Wolfgang Luth was an outstanding leader of men. His strength was as great as his fairness and concern. The story was often told aboard U-181 of how it had been on U-9 when Luth's submarine had been shaken by depth, depth charges and no one believed they would ever survive. It was early 1940. 
Report damage, ordered Luth as the emergency lighting flickered to life. At the same moment, a fresh series of death charges came down. One, two, three. The men stopped counting at seven. This time they were significantly closer. The boat was tossed about like a rubber ball. The next series must be a direct hit. What's happening? asked Luth in the silence. Engine room reporting, pressure gauge has burst. If nothing else is broken, we can carry on, thought Luth. The next series of seven depth charges shook the submarine mightily. Go to 80 meters. The submarine sank more quickly than usual. 80 meters, reported the chief engineer. Try to get us to 100 meters. Depth charges. I have 120 here, Oberleutnant, reported the chief engineer. Perhaps we'll be lucky and survive this mess, Luth murmured to himself. Depth charges in the water. The radio operator kept silent. He sat at his position, not allowed to move it, move from it to take cover. More depth charges. The emergency light, lighting went out. Everyone listen to me, Luth shouted into the darkness. The men listened. Stay absolutely quiet. This business will pass, he said with a calm voice. A fresh series of depth charges forced the boat even deeper. Stools rolled around the compartment. Men fell to the floor. Cries. A number of men were cut when they struck their heads on angular metal structures. The captain clung grimly to the periscope. He too stared upward in fear. He cursed himself once again for having disregarded the second destroyer. In the meantime, the chief engineer had restored the lights. When light once again filled the compartment, the men were noticeably green in the face. Then another explosion extinguished the lights again. Suddenly there was water in the compartment. Someone shouted, A valve has burst in the bilge line. Fire! There, everyone could see. The instrument panel in the central console console was burning. The fire spread very quickly. The men seemed paralyzed. Before Luth could say anything, someone came out of the darkness and plunged into the flames, oblivious to the danger. The man, no one knew yet who it was, extinguished the flames with a blanket and his bare hands. The fire went out, the danger over. No one had taken any notice of the two additional depth charge attacks. The bilge pump was soon back in order and the leak stopped. Luth heard someone say, We put a dressing on Malik, Herr Oberleutnant. So that's who had saved the boat. Malik? He remembered. That was a sailor he had been forced to take on board to prove himself. Bring him here, Bring him here ordered Luth wiping his forehead and mouth with the back of his hand. The air was thick enough to cut, and to add to their misery, the sound locator operator continued to report screw noises nearby. That could only be the destroyers. Steam and Malik stood before the captain with a bandaged hand. The emergency lighting cast bizarre shadows on the faces of both men. The others listened with one ear for screw noises, which they could no longer hear him, the other in vain for a speech. However, nothing happened. There was absolute silence in the submarine. The only sounds were the breathing of the men and the light swishing of water against the ship's hull. Then Luth broke the silence. No one could and would say what he might be feeling. Even later he said nothing of it. Only in his eyes there was a light, which was always visible when he was extraordinarily happy in some, about something and when he was grateful. Thank you, he said in a soft but firm voice and offered his hand to the seaman. Only then did Luth see the thick bandage covering the man's fingers. He did not squeeze hard, but he felt how the sailor's fingers closed around his hand and stood erect. As you were, you saved the ship. They had all heard it. The sailor started back to his post, but Luth held him back once again. The Oberleutnant stood before the man and said, this time in a louder voice, I'm going to recommend you for the Iron Cross first class for fearless acts in the face of the enemy. Then a thunderous hooray went through the ship, something Luth had not experienced. Everyone to their stations, ordered Luth, interrupting the outburst of joy which the men had so badly needed and which acted as a valve through which their depressed mood and fear was blown away. That was then on U-9. Now Luth 
led a new crew into the Indian Ocean. This was his second voyage aboard U-181, and the men who had taken part in the first knew that the rules were the same as in the Atlantic. Then they sank the Empire Lake, a modern British vessel, even if only of 2,852 tons. When the two torpedoes bored through the side of the ship's hull, the crew roared, Hit! in unison. Then Obergefreiter Kruger put on the record with the victory march. That was Luth's custom, but the commander gestured him to wait. Just a moment. Pappy wants to have a look. Peering through the periscope, Luth saw the effects of the torpedoes. The ship had been hit in the stern and the amidships. The Empire Lake sent an SOS, torpedo by enemy submarine, then it broke apart with a terrible din. The ship's crew tried to escape the maelstrom in the lifeboats. It was a horrible scene. Low tanks surface, Luth ordered a short time later. U-181 surfaced in the midst of the survivors. Slowly, Luth moved towards the nearest life lifeboat. Is the captain on board, he asked. The men shook their heads. Any officers? One officer identified himself. Luth ordered him on board. He asked him why he hadn't detected the submarine. The range of our detection equipment was inadequate, replied the Australian. The ship had been carrying a cargo of vegetable oil and frozen meat for England. I can't assist you, said Luth. There's no room for your men on board. You'll, you'll surely be picked up soon by a res rescue vessel. The officer smiled skeptically. No one will look for us here, and no one will find us. If we're lucky, we might by chance cross the route of a freighter. And softly he added, I know what's left, thirst and the sharks. Luth's men tossed the survivors' ropes and rolls of wire so that they could tie their lifeboats together and at least be safe from the sharks. Anyone who has to swim here won't live long, whispered someone behind the commander. Luth turned slowly and looked at the man. Then we'll just have to make sure that we don't get into a situation where we have to go swimming. That depends on each individual. This men had a great deal of luck in all their operations. The list of enemy ships sunk grew. The last on this operation was the 10,528-ton Clan MacArthur, a fully laden refrigerator ship bound for Mauritius. With only one torpedo left on board, Luth set course for home, ignoring an order from Dunitz to search for the damaged U-197. The reason for his decision. As fuel was running low, he would not be able to find or assist U-197, and his own ship and crew would be endangered, especially since enemy anti-submarine aircraft were becoming more active. Nothing more was said of the incident. U-181 arrived in Bordeaux on October 14th after 203 days at sea, and a total of 45,331 tons of enemy shipping sunk. Wolfgang Luth was 30 years old when he received the diamonds on August 11th, 1943. Barely a year later, he was promoted to the rank of Capitaine Tuazi. This extremely capable and courageous submarine commander was destined for a great career. Gross Admiral Dunitz wanted to name him Commander of Submarines. Born in Riga on October 15, 1913, Luth completed his schooling there and studied law for three semesters at the Herda Institute, but he wanted to go to sea. On April 1, 1933, he joined the German Navy as an officer cadet. After basic training, he was assigned to the training sailing ship Gorch Falk. There he was promoted to sea cadet. Luth sailed around the world aboard the cruiser Karlsruhe. He passed his final naval, naval officer examinations at Flensburg-Morwick Naval Academy. On October 1, 1936, Wolfgang Luth was promoted to the rank of Leutnant zur See. A year later, he joined the submarine service. On June 1, 1938, he was promoted to the rank of Oberleutnant zur See. Luth sailed aboard various submarines as first watch officer and deputy commander until, in December 1939, he was given his first command. With U-9, he sank 16,669 tons of enemy shipping in five sorties. 
In one special operation, he was supposed to guard German ships sailing to Norway against submarine attack. He succeeded in damaging an enemy destroyer and sinking a submarine. Following this operation, he took command of U-138, with which he was active in the North Atlantic until September 25, 1940. On two sorties totaling 27 days at sea, he sank 39,971 tons of enemy shipping. Luth was awarded the Knight's Cross on October 24, 1940, in recognition of his success. As commander of U-43, Luth made six sorties into the North Atlantic in the period of November 40 to February 1942, and in 192 days at sea sank nine enemy ships totaling 54,795 tons. On May 9, 1942, he took charge of U-181. The BDU and its chief of operations section, Admiral Gott, had come up with a special route for the fearless commander to South Africa and the Indian Ocean. Luth knew the stresses and difficulties this voyage would involve. Unusual climate, thousands of miles from home, port, and support bases, no hope of assistance if they were disabled. He could only rendezvous with the submarine tanker at specified times. All in all, it was an operation which should contain many surprises for the commander and his crew. Four and a half months is a long time. Four and a half months of water, attacks, torpedoes, bombs, diving, surfacing for air, chasing, and being chased. Luth and his men survived 128 days at sea, and during this first sortie sank, tw sank 12 enemy ships, totaling 58,381 tons. On November 17, 1942, he received the Oak Leaves. The second cruise into the Indian Ocean lasted from March 23 to October 14, 1943. In the course of this sortie, Luth achieved a unique record. He and his men were 205 days at sea. Nothing but sky and water ships, depth charges, and torpedoes. During the sortie, he sank 103,712 tons of enemy shipping. On April 1, 1943, Luth was promoted to Corvette Capitaine, then received the swords on April 15th and the diamonds on August 11, 1943. On January 15, 1944, Wolfgang Luth was placed in command of the 22nd Submarine Flotilla in Gotenhafen. On August 1st, he was promoted to Fregetten Capitaine and transferred to the Flensburg Morwick Naval Academy, where he became commander of the 1st Division. Luth was promoted to Capitaine sur Zee on September 1st. With the help of his friend Klaus Korth, he wrote a book about his experiences in submarines. Luth became a sought-after and popular advisor on submarine questions. He spoke before officers and officer cadets, before generals and admirals. What he said was simple and clear. During this time, he worked on a guidebook for future naval officers, which went on to become a standard text for young cadets. On September 18, 1944, Capitaine Sir Z. Luth received a surprise appointment as commander of the Naval Academy at 31 years of age. In the past, this position had always been held by an admiral. This unusual choice made clear Dönitz's intention to ease Luth's pass to the highest command positions in the German Navy. Luth commanded with a firm hand, for he knew that the officers of tomorrow would face far greater challenges than in the past. As it turned out, there was little he could do. The end of the war was at hand. May 1945. The last president of the Reich, which had meanwhile been occupied by the Allies, was Groß Admiral Dönitz. The government transferred its headquarters from Plön to the Flensburg Morwick Naval Academy. The Academy's commanding officer, Wolfgang Luth, moved out of the building which housed his headquarters. He was responsible for the safety of the government. On the academy grounds, Oak Leaves were Ali Kramer, last captain of the U-2519, 
commanded the Dönitz Guard Battalion, the last fighting force, 400 men strong, of the last Reich president. On May 5th, the English occupied Flensburg, but in the Naval Academy, nothing changed. German soldiers and sailors were allowed to carry arms. Their commander, Luth, was even empowered to defend the academy against anyone who dared attack it. The English had learned that freed foreign workers intended to carry out a surprise attack at the Naval Academy. Luth issued orders to place placards at the outer boundaries of the facility which bore the words, Warning, this area is off limits to civilians. Anyone who enters without passing through the main gate will be fired on without warning. That was the general warning. But Luth was concerned about security. He issued several memos to the guards, one of which stated, The guards are to issue one challenge. If this is not answered, they are to fire immediately. The commanding officer ensured that Ali Kramer's guard battalion was made aware of this order. On May 13, 1945, the password was Tannenberg. The watch officer, Maschinenmat Karl Franz, checked the sentries. Seaman Matthias Gottlob, 18 years old, prepared for a 24-hour watch. Outside, it was warm. The watch was changed, quote, without incident. At midnight, it was Gottlob's turn to stand guard again. The, words, the warm spring evening had become a stormy night. The wind howled, and one could scarcely hear himself speak. Maschinenmat Karl Franz checked the sentries, for he knew that Luth could turn up unannounced to check on the alertness of his soldiers. The CO, the CO had said, Anyone sleeping here will be court-martialed. The sentry is responsible for the safety of his comrades and the government. Franz asked the sentries, who made their rounds on the road and around the sports school, if they had seen anything out of the ordinary. Nothing new. Stay alert. Luth is coming any minute, he admonished them. Luth came several minutes later. He had just participated in a conference in the government building. His collars turned up. He pressed on into the storm. Maschinenmat Franz came toward him and reported. Tired and a little apathetic, Luth raised his hand to his cap and walked on. Franz watched the captain go, turned round, and walked towards the next sentry. Then he heard someone shout, Halt! Franz stopped and listened into the night. Again the same shout, Halt! Then he thought he heard it again, somewhat softer this time. Right away there was a shot, muffled as if fired with a silencer. Franz ran towards the sound. What's going on? He shouted from a distance. I fired, answered the sentry. Yes, man, but at whom? Seema Matthias Gottlob pointed with one hand. There. The machinist mate ran, stopped, bent down. He saw an officer's cap. He picked it up, and an icy chill went through him. He was holding Captain Wolfgang Luth's cap in his hand. Then he saw the figure on the ground. He kneeled down and tried to recognize the face. Fingers shaking, he felt along the leather coat, touched the face, and felt something wet between his fingers. Blood. The other two sentries came here, hurrying up to the scene. When Franz turned around, he saw Gottlob, still with the rifle in his hand, staring at the form lying on the ground. I didn't even aim, he said softly. My God, my God. A few minutes later, the medical officer determined that Kapitän Terzi Wolfgang Luth was dead, killed by a bullet in the head. When Gross Admiral Dönitz adjutant Luden Neurath learned by telephone what had happened, he thought someone was playing a terrible joke on him. But the voice of the watch officer suggested it was true. Luden Neurath woke Luth's brother Joachim, who was sleeping in the captain's office, and told him what he had just learned. At first, Joachim Luth didn't comprehend what was being said. What? Shot five days after the surrender? Now, after Wolfgang had survived all of his combat sorties? How was he supposed to tell Luth's wife, who was living in the same building with the four children? The officer of the watch interrogated Seaman Gottlob and watch officer Franz. He listened to what both had to say, and he believed them. 
He was shaken by the tragedy. An officer had been shot because a sentry had followed his orders to the letter. I didn't want to shoot him. I didn't recognize him, Gottlob assured his interrogator. But I, when I challenged him three times and received no answer, I was suddenly afraid that it might be a foreigner. Then I pressed the trigger. I was holding the rifle at my hip. I didn't even aim. Gottlob had told the truth. Later, when Dönitz demanded a preliminary examination to determine whether a court-martial was warranted, even though the German armed forces had surrendered and no longer existed, it proved Gottlob's innocence. Four officers and the local Navy legal officer listened once again to the account of the tragic incident. Then Dönitz interviewed Gottlob. All reached the same conclusion, and after 20 minutes announced, Seaman Matthias Gottlob carried out the standing order and followed this correctly. He did his duty as soldier and fired after issuing three challenges and receiving no response. He bears no guilt in the death of Capitaine Surzi Wolfgang Luth. Services for Wolfgang Luth took place on May 16th. The British city commandant, Colonel Roberts, authorized a state funeral. The coffin containing the body of Capitaine Surzi Wolfgang Luth was laid out in the auditorium of the Naval Academy. Six of his comrades, all recipients of the Knight's Cross, formed the Guard of Honor in full-dress uniform with drawn swords. Gross Admiral Donitz delivered the eulogy. Then officer cadets bore the coffin from the auditorium to the Adelby Church Cemetery. Ali Kramer commanded the honor party. For the last time, a firing party fired the final salute to a German officer. Thirty years later, in May 1975, a new generation was growing up, and once again young men were called upon to defend the freedom of the nation. The Bundesmarine, the new German Navy, dedicated a memorial to Captain Surzee Wolfgang Luth. This irreproachable officer is an example to every young man who is ready to risk his life for the maintenance of parliamentary democracy. His memory remains alive today, said an article in the newspaper, Die Bundesmarine. Luth would have said, quote, you're fine, lads.